See, we last week started uh, talking about uh, stewardship and money. If there was ever a uh, touchy subject uh, to bring up in the church, it's like, you're a little bit in my business talking about stewardship and money. Um, It would be this particular area. And we shared two quotes last week, uh, one from Billy Graham that says, if a person gets his attitude uh, toward money straight, it will help straighten out almost every other area in his life or her life. And that is so true. Uh, A.B. Simpson, the founder of the movement that we're a part of with the Christian Missionary Alliance, says, as long as you want anything very much, especially more than you want God, it is an idol. Uh, if we want anything very much, especially when it, when it rises to the level to be more than God, it becomes an idol. And remember last week we shared how money and materialism and wealth and stuff uh, the fact is, it's become an idol to us, right? I mean, the idea, I want more. I want better. I want bigger. Um, and we will spend money at all costs to get there. And we shared last week some stats, some staggering stats about how bad we do as, as Americans when it comes to saving, right? Uh, that literally a fourth of us don't save a penny of our paycheck. Uh, we also talked about debt. Um, that, that uh, a third of all people that are in credit card debt, the average home is 8300 uh, per household and growing, and a third of people in that spot just pay the minimum, uh, which will be 20 or 30 years to pay that thing off. So it's not just debt in homes, it's debt as a country, it's debt as organizations. And we've looked at all of that, and we said, well, that's normal, right? I mean, everybody's in debt up to their eyeballs, just swimming in it. So let's get in debt with them, and uh, we've called it normal and we look around at everyone else and say, well, it's, they're, they're managing it, so we can as well. The problem is God has a lot to say about it, and God has a different way. God has a better way, and what the enemy will do is he will use money. He will use wealth. He'll use materialism. He'll use keeping up with the Joneses, right, that mindset, and he will, he will bind us up, and we will be in a place in our lives where we can't live free, and we certainly can't live a life of generosity. Uh, why would we talk about money for a couple weeks? It seems a little personal, right? Well, one of the reasons, the main reasons why, is because God has a lot to say about it. If you were to do a word study in Scripture, you'd find out that um, He talks more about money and our stuff uh, than heaven and hell combined. All throughout Scripture, He talks about more about money and our resources and how it has us at times than heaven and hell combined. We said it last week. Uh, as Christ followers, we begin this journey, and our goal is to be obedient to Him in every area of our life, right? And one of the number one places why God talks about money so much all throughout Scripture is because He knew, this is Patrick's 20, so if anybody wants it afterwards, I forgot money, so you can have it. He knew that money uh, was going to be a, at a place in our life where, where it is number one, right? And being obedient to God, following His ways, uh, living under his teaching was going was gonna to fall beneath that. That at times we can allow our money to have us instead of, instead of God having us, right? We said last week, July 30th, 1956, uh, was a transformational day on the almighty dollar bill and coins. Uh, because what did they vote into, office, or into law that day was to put in God we trust on every coin and on every dollar bill and every twenty. Every amount of money that we could think of. Why? Because in a sense, they wanted us to remember that it's in God we trust, not this, right? 
God wants our whole hearts. And this is an area where he speaks a lot about it. And one of the areas he speaks the most, we touched on last week with Matthew 6, verse 24. Uh, he says this. He says, no one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate one and love the other. Or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. And then he, he gives us this line, probably the most important. You cannot serve both God and money. They both cannot be elevated to number one in your life. You're either going to hate one or despise the other. It's God. It's God first. It's God first. So he says you cannot serve both God and money. Remember the word we used last week. It's God and mammon uh, in, the, in the King James Version. So it's God and riches. And the culture back then that he was writing to had a, had a hard time figuring this out. And I think he knew, oh, some 2,020 years later, uh, we would still be in the same boat struggling with, with putting God first over, over this, right? So he has a lot to say about it. So last week we shared all kinds of staggering stats. If you missed those, you can go back and, uh, you can go back and listen to last week's message. But we talked a lot about debt and tithing, and we also talked about, we also talked about savings. And today uh, I want to talk about, talk about saving. And we're not going to talk about your particular saving account at the bank, uh, but I want to see what God has to say because He has a lot to say about saving. Um, for one, uh, Jesus saves, right? A little play on words. We know that. And I want you to know before we jump into any scripture about stewardship and money today that the most important savings account that you could ever open, the most valuable savings account that you could ever open, the savings account that you can have hope in is being saved by Christ, being in relationship with Him. That Christ died on the cross for us uh, to pay the penalty, uh, to forgive us of all of our sin, past, which we've all got a lot of past sin, right? Our present sin uh, that we still find ourselves possibly in, and our future sin. He died for all of it. So we serve a God in heaven that cares much more about what's going on in here than what's going on in your checkbook. Or what's going on in your wallet. So I don't want you to leave this place today with money on the mind. Because we serve a God that, while He does have some things to say about it, it's really a heart issue. And it's really an issue about where we are in relationship to Him with our money. When I was young, uh, I, I was trying to think of it, it was middle school, may have been late elementary. Um, I remember vividly going with my dad uh, to the credit union in Decatur, Indiana, this tiny little credit union, and we sat down with the, I don't even know what, credit union person, and uh, we opened up a savings, a savings account. And uh, I don't know what your savings account looked like when you were in middle school or upper elementary, um, but mine was meager, to say the least. And uh, as it got a little bit of money in it, it found its way out of the savings account quicker than uh, it needed to, and it was just always in that state, right? Uh, because I knew that even if I spent it all, uh, dad and mom were still going to give me a plate of food, probably. And I was still going to be able to sleep in my bed at home and have a roof over my head. Um, so things were good. And then you get a little bit older. And um, I remember when I turned 18 years old, um, I started and opened up my own 501c3 nonprofit uh, ministry. And it was a music ministry in which we traveled uh, around like Ohio and Indiana to community events and festivals and churches and and, uh, and, and had a ministry through music. And during that time, uh, things began to change when it came to the savings account. You learn really quick uh, when you have thousands of dollars coming in and people are giving unto that, 
uh, under the ministry of how to be a steward of that money, right? How to save it uh, and not spend it all because you might need some later down the road. You also learn the value really quick, and I'm so thankful I learned it early on, the value of the sacrifice of somebody giving to that ministry and being very appreciative to them, that that is their hard-earned working dollars, and they're already given to their church most likely, and now they're giving above and beyond to this particular, to this particular ministry. And uh, I don't know what it was, if it was back opening an account when I was younger, maybe when I turned 18, but there was a fear, I think it was with the ministry, there was a fear that always rushed over me. And maybe you've experienced this as well when it comes to money and when it comes to, is, am I going to be able to make it? And it was just that. Am I going to have enough? Am I going to be able to pay the bill when it comes in? Am I going to be able to make this ministry move forward without sinking it after all these people have donated to it and tried to help in the best way they can to, to move this ministry forward? And that carried on into my 20s and probably even into my adult years. Of You ever have that fear of, man, are we going to have enough? Am I ever going to go without? Am I going to struggle? What's going to happen if this takes place and all of a sudden I find myself now in this tough place in life? And then as, as sure as I'm standing here, when I was in my 20s, this, this message was preached out of Matthew 6. And I was trying to think, I'm guessing it was from a Youth for Christ uh, event or trip or something because we were very involved in that. Um, and he wasn't, the, he wasn't preaching about money, and he wasn't preaching about stewardship, and he said, these are the only words I remember in the message. Just like you don't remember any of mine, I don't remember many of the other people's either. So here's what he said. He says, worrying about the future equals sin. Worrying about the future equals sin. It, worrying about the future shows that we don't trust this almighty God that, that has our future, that's already taken care of our lives, that's going to continue to take care of our lives, that we're looking to an almighty God and saying, I'm not sure I can trust you in this, so I'm going to worry about it. Imagine my early 20-year-old ears hearing that. Worrying is a sin? <laughs> Worrying's a sin. I mean, everybody worries, right? I worry. My parents worry. I'm sure my siblings worry. Every, my teacher, everybody worries. And you're telling me that worry, worry is a sin. Worrying about my future is a sin. That's a bold statement, right? I mean, to think, worrying about my future is sinful. But you know what the reality is? Matthew 6 spells it out about as clear as it can be. It's true that worrying about our future is sin. Not planning for our future, that's smart, but worrying about it is sin. So Matthew 6, 25 says, therefore I tell you, do not worry. He doesn't give us any, well, unless it's this. He says, do not worry uh, about your life, what you will eat or drink or about your body, what you will wear. Is life not more than food and the body more than clothes? Do not worry. Your God already knows you need these things we're going to see. So he gives some examples in verse 26 through 31. And then jump to 32. For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. Let me ask you a quiz question. If you have a God in heaven that loves you so much, that created you, that created the heavens and the earth, and he knows you need something, do you think he's a God that can be trusted to provide that very thing? I'm not talking about things you want or things, man, it would be nice to have that. I'm talking about things that you absolutely need. And then he says this. But instead, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these 
things that we just talked about in the previous verses will be added to you as well. Therefore, since God's on the throne, therefore, since God's still in charge, therefore, since God can be trusted, do not worry about tomorrow. How many have already blown it today? Thinking about, I got a meeting, I got to do this tomorrow. Do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own, to which all of us in here should give a shouting amen, right? Yeah, there's trouble in this life. Things are hard at times. Uh, Yeah, I worry about what I'm going to eat, what I'm going to drink. Am I going to have a roof on my head? Am I going to be able to pay the bill this month, right? But we need not worry about tomorrow. And our job is not worry, but seek first the kingdom of God. And all these things will be added unto you as well. Most people read this scripture and they think, well, uh, why why does this even fit with saving, right? I don't need to save anything. I really don't even need to do anything. Because our God in heaven is going to take care of, he's going to take care of me. And I don't need to prepare and I don't need to do anything. But what does he say in this passage? He doesn't say don't save, don't prepare, uh, don't take care of that. He says do not, do not worry about your future. Those are two different things, worrying and preparing. And it starts with faith. Remember we looked at Hebrews 11 verse 6 last week. He said without faith. It's impossible to please God. Uh, Faith, we can't always see the outcome. Faith, we don't always know what's next. Faith, we're not even actually sure if we're going to be able to pay the bill, right? Because we can't quite see it, but we have faith in God that He is our provider. Without faith, it is not possible to please God. We shared that last week. So when we think about our future with worry, uh, when we think about our pocketbook with worry, our savings account with worry, Uh, That can lead us to some doomsday thinking, right? Fill up a suitcase, bury it in the backyard. That's not where God is calling us to go. But when we're obedient unto God's word, when we're following God's word, when we're preparing for the future, as we're going to see here in Proverbs 6 uh, uh, in a minute, uh, it honors God. And it not only honors God, but it sets us up for a pretty great future. And not just us. Remember the proverb we read last week? It can set up your children and your children's children with a better future because you were biblically sound in the way you handled your money. Proverbs 13.22 says, A good person leaves an inheritance for their children's children. So if we get this right, we we can literally change generations that are coming after us. And I'm not talking about a huge windfall that you're going to pass their way. But hopefully, because you're going to instill values in them that follow biblical principles as well. And that's going to continue over and over and over again. It's called faithful obedience. So here's a tough one to start off the day. Do not worry about your future. Do not worry about your future. Proverbs 6, uh, we're going to learn from a particular uh, little thing today that you probably never thought you'd talk about in church that that really points to the idea that saving money is smart. Uh, we're going to learn from an ant. Did you ever think you'd come to church and it would be in the Bible to learn from the life of an ant? How many of you like ants when they're buzzing around your kitchen because you kids leave all the food out and they're gobbling it down? I can't stand ants, but we can learn from ants. And from here on out, I'm going to look at ants and say, you're smarter than me because of the way they live their lives you're going to see here in Proverbs 6. So let's read it, and, uh, and we're going to study it and make the best sense we can. Proverbs 6, verse 6 through 11 Go to the ant, or you could say, look to the ant. 
you sluggard, he says. How many of you like that word? You sluggard. Use that one tomorrow for somebody that's just dragging tail at work and they're not doing their job and just point at them and say, you sluggard, get to work. Um, Don't do that. And then he says, consider its ways, watch it, learn from this ant, and be what? Because it is wise. Follow the ant. This ant is doing things in such a way that sometimes it's smarter than us. Uh, For sure is, based on the stats we read last week of the American household. It has no commander. It has no overseer or ruler. How many of you kind of want to be an ant? Like, I like that, right? Uh, And then here's what it does. Yet it stores its provisions in the summer, and it gathers its food at harvest. The ant stores its provisions. It saves its provisions. The ant gathers at harvest. It saves uh, at harvest, right? It saves some of it. Pretty smart ant. And then he goes back to the sluggard and he says, how long will you lie there, you sluggard? When will you get up from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty, before you know it, will come on you like a thief and scarcity like an armed man. What do we learn? What do we learn from the ant? What is there to learn from the ant? Well, one... One is the ant, a lot of times, is, as I just said, is smarter than us. Uh, it's saving its provisions, right? It's, it's saving, it's putting back some of its harvest. Another thing that we learn from the ant is, is that we are supposed to work hard in this life while we have the opportunity to work hard in this life, right? I mean, an ant can only work for so many months, and then it has to store its harvest, and hopefully it can sustain itself long past that time. So here's what it tells me for us, that when you have the opportunity to work, we work. Why? Because we're not always going to have the opportunity to work. Someday down the road, we're going to have an opportunity to work less than we even are right now. And then someday further down the road from that, we're going to have the opportunity where we cannot work at all. Now, before anybody starts pinning a letter to me about the, you know, everybody in the household working, that's not what I'm talking about. Um, I, there's great reasons, great, great reasons why one in the home is working and one is staying home, and it's honorable. Um, but if there is one in the home that can work, I think Paul would tell us through Second Thessalonians, and what this ant would teach us is if you have the ability to work, we work. Christians work hard. We should model working, working hard, right? Why should that person work hard in the household? Well, to take care of the family. And two, there's going to come a time when that person that is working is no longer going to be able to work. So Paul, he hammered the church in, second, uh, in, in, in Thessalonica. In 2 Thessalonians, remember this church, they were all about Jesus is coming back, which is a really good thing. Um, but because of that, they thought Jesus was coming like tomorrow. They quit their jobs. They quit working. They started living lives of idleness, thinking, well, everybody else is going to take care of me. And here's what Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 3.10. For even when we were with you, you, gave, uh, you gave, we gave you this rule. The one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. That's pretty harsh, right? Paul's saying we as Christ followers should model working hard. Uh, Paul modeled working hard. What did he do? He was a tent maker, right? So he would preach by day or preach whenever there was an audience, and all the rest of the time he was modeling hard work by building tents and selling them to sustain himself uh, in ministry. we got to work hard. The ant would work hard. 
in the seasons that it could work hard, it would put some back so that the seasons, whether it got cold or whatever it was, it saved so it could sustain itself in those, in those seasons. The third thing we see is we need to put some money back for the future. We need to put some, while this is very agricultural with the, with the ant and the sluggard, um, many of you grew up maybe in an area or with family or a mom or dad or grandma and grandpa that uh, grew up on a farm. Uh, my dad uh, was not a, we didn't have like animals and all that, but he would farm 40, 50 acres every year, and he still does today. Um, and he probably lost money because we had old junky machinery, and every time he turned for another lap, it'd break down and have to fix it and, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but I remember very clearly uh, that when it would be harvest time, uh, John would we'd go to Monroe Grain or Peterson Grain or one of the places that was near us. You put the wagon on the scale, you weigh it, you pour all the grain down this huge tube, and then all of a sudden you weigh the wagon again and see how much was there. Dad would go into the, this little tiny shop, and they would hand him a check, and he didn't come out and spend it all by day's end, right? Why? Because harvest is a whole other year away. And he had to pay for farming equipment and, 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 and seed and all the stuff that would come for that next time afterwards. So when you farm and you reap a harvest, you don't eat it all right away. You don't spend it all right away. For us, we may not be farming as much today. I read that 2% of America feeds the other 90% of America this week. So be nice to farmers because they're feeding you, right? So while we don't understand the harvest thing all, all the way, all of you in here have a harvest, don't you? Um, could be when you finish a project and you get a check. Could be on Friday. Could be the 15th or the 30th of the month. And when we receive that, where do you give that harvest? Where's the first fruits of that harvest going? That's what we talked about last week. Our first fruits of the harvest go back to the house, to the house of God. And not only that, when we are, we are done with that, one of the things that we do as well is we put back, we save some of our provision, some of our harvest for a future time when we may not be able to work. There are living testimonies in this room today of those that are retired and they practice this for many, many, many years and now they're reaping the benefits and their children and their children's children are going to reap the benefits of this as well. So we save some. The problem is most aren't doing this. Not only not tithing, but not saving. I shared the stat, 20% of Americans do not save a penny of their check. 56% of Americans do not have a penny in a retirement, do not have a penny in a retirement account. And most of the reason why is because they are too busy not earning interest, but paying interest on all the overspending that was a part of their past, right? And they find themselves just in some tough spots. And what happens is we are robbed from the future God intended for us, living beyond our means. I want to share where this leads from a great book. And if you've never worked through it, I encourage you to. I've shared some stats out of this book before. It's out of the Hole, of the Go- Hole in the Gospel by Richard Stearns. Richard was the president and CEO of a great company uh, called World Vision. And he is simply, he's, re- he's retired in 2018, but... Uh, So many of his stats ring true today for the American church. And if you weren't perked up listening to anything I said from the beginning, I encourage you to listen to this. 
because I believe there's a lot expected from us as American Christians. And let me just share some of these stats of why how we handle our money is a big deal. And here it is. 2.6 billion people live on less than $2 a day. 2.6 billion people around the world live on less than 2 bucks a day. 1 billion live on less than a dollar a day. So that means three point half of our world, we think what we're doing, the way our lifestyles are, is normal, right? Half the world's living on less than two bucks a day. Average American lives on $105 a day, $105 a day. If you make $25,000 uh, in this room, right, uh, you make more than 90% of the people in this world. If you make $50,000 in this room, you make more than 98% of the people in this world. We are filthy rich, filthy rich. And we don't often think of it that way because we base, if somebody's filthy rich, like on what they have, or we look at our lives and think of all the things we don't have, so I'm certainly not filthy rich. But if you're an American, right, and you fit in any of the criteria I just shared, you are filthy, filthy rich, filthy rich. When you realize 93% of the world's population does not own a car, uh, your clunker looks pretty good, right? Or whatever you drive. 93% of the world's uh, population, do, they don't own a car. And we have two, three, you know, in our, in our homes today, getting around wherever we, need to, wherever we need to be. It's more important to put this in perspective, that the American church today, as Christians stand in 2020, we are the wealthiest group of Christians to ever walk the face of the earth in America. The wealthiest group of Christians to ever walk the face of the earth. Uh, our net worth, just how rich are we? $5.2 trillion makes up how much money we have as American Christians today. $5.2 trillion. And Stearns would say in his book, just 1% of that $5.2 trillion would lift the, the poorest $1 billion out of extreme poverty. Notice I didn't say 10%, baseline tithing. 1% of just Christians giving because God called us to could lift the poorest $1 billion out of out of global, out of, out of extreme poverty. Said another way, American Christians who make up about 5% of the church worldwide, American Christians, we only make up 5% of the world, of the church worldwide. We think we get to heaven, everybody's going to look like us, right? And everybody's going to look like people in center. But when we get to heaven, there's going to be a lot more people that don't look like you and certainly didn't live like you. We only make up 5%, but we control half the global wealth as Christians in America, half the global wealth. So with that, you would think, man, we're knocking it out of the park giving, right? We must be making dents and doing incredible things. Well, there's some sad news that goes with that from Stearns. If tithing is 10% of our income uh, to, to the church, or we could even say to nonprofit ministries, only about 5% of American households tithe. 5%. Does it get better with born-again Christians? A little bit. 9% of households tithe, the baseline 10%. 9% of Christians are baseline obedient unto God's word with the tithe. And Stearns asked this, and I can ask it as well, could it be that over 90% of Christians in America are robbing God from the 10% that should be given back to him? I think the answer to that is yes. The answer is yes. With our wealth today, uh, are we giving more, a higher percentage than, than in the past? And the answer is no. 
1933, the time of the Great Depression, uh, Christians were giving 3.3% of their income. Here we are, 2020, richest group of Christians to ever walk the earth, and we're at 2.5. Another sobering stat, which we don't fit into, congratulations, we're doing really well on this one, only 2% of American, like uh, the church, the American church, their ministry fund, and all the money that comes in goes out to global and world missions. 2%. 2%. So the other 98% stays right there in that church to fund everything they're doing. Uh, we are at 24%. Pretty awesome. We get it when it comes to global missions and what's going on around the world. It's because of your generosity. 24 cents on every dollar that walks into this place walks straight back out to fuel the gospel being shared around the world. That is, it's unheard of in the local church. So great job on that. But my question is this, is what if American Christians, I'm just talking Christians that live in the States, would be based, not anything above 10%, not anything above and beyond, but would baseline tithe 10%. They would bring the whole tithe to the storehouse, as Matthew, or Matthew, Malachi 3.10 says. Could you imagine what would happen in the world? Could you imagine what would happen in our communities? Could you imagine the manifestation of God and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the healing and the lives that could be changed? If Christians, I'm not talking about would give crazy above 10%, would just be 10% baseline obedient. Stearns gives a little bit of answers to that. If we were to move to that, what would happen? What could happen? Uh, We would have an extra $168 billion to fund the gospel around the world. Let me put $168 billion into perspective. Americans spend $705 billion on entertainment and recreation every year. Teenagers, you're doing a great job. You spend $179 billion of your parents' dollars every year. Americans spend $65 billion on jewelry. Uh, Americans spend $58 billion on lottery tickets each year. U.S. government, uh, our foreign aid to other countries is $39 to $40 billion. Imagine the Christians gave $168 billion, what could happen? We as Americans spend uh, $31 billion on our pet every year, our pets. Uh, $13 billion on cosmetic surgery, cosmetic surgery, and sadly we spend $5 billion, roughly, on global work, around, global work around the world. Imagine if every Christ follower, every churchgoer gave the baseline 10%. Imagine lives that could be changed. Here's what Stern says. He believes only, we would only need $68 billion of the $168 billion that would be coming in to literally change that 3.6 billion people, their lives forever. They, they would have clean water, food, education. Imagine how the world, we would be able to give more than all world governments combined, just Christians in America, if we just baseline 10% gave to the Lord's work. Imagine the world looking at that statement, right? And seeing a work of God in the local church like never, like never before. It seems like a big daunting task. It seems like we need like every TV station every night to get this word out. We, how, where do you start, right? Um, well, where we start is with ourselves. And we ask ourselves, where am I in this? Is my trust more in Patrick's $20 bill? I'm probably going to give back maybe at the end. Or is it in is it in God's is it in God's word? Is it in is it in God alone? This week you probably saw the incredible stat. 
Uh, we had a church in Cincinnati, Crossroads Church. I love Crossroads Church and Brian Tome, what he's doing down there. Um, they eradicated 45,000 patients in Indiana, Ohio, and Kentucky, their medical debt, to the tune of $46.5 million that church generously gave to wipe out 45,000 people's medical debt. So they're going to get a, a, an envelope in the mail. I, I re, read the article like this week or next, and it's going to say zero. And the church stepped up, and they did it. Incredible testimony. A million of that, I was just reading an article this morning before I came into church, a million of that's going to people in Dayton. So look out in your mailboxes this week. I don't know, it may come your way. But it's incredible to see what the church can do when the church decides we are truly called to be salt and light to the world. I close with Matthew 5, verse 16 says, In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. As we prepare ourselves for communion today, um, I want you to watch the screen and follow along in this last quote. Uh, it's written by Scott Roden from his book, Stewards in the Kingdom, and, and allow this to soak into your soul for a minute. We must never for a single moment lose sight of the stark realization that whenever we deal with money, we're dealing with dynamite. What is one day that which we control, the next day becomes the controller. Such dynamite must be diffused. And the greatest diffuser that we as Christians have at our disposal is the opportunity to take that which seeks to dominate us and to simply give it away. Think about it. There is no greater expression of money's total lack of dominance over us or its low priority in our lives than when we, with joy and peace, give it back to the Lord's work. You cannot worship the idol of money and be a free and cheerful giver. Likewise, you cannot serve the living God and be a hoarder of His resources. Giving, both how we give and how much we give, is the clearest outward expression of who our God really is. Our check stubs speak more honestly to our priorities than our church memberships. 1 Timothy 6, verse 17, command those who are rich in this present world. You know who that is? Every single one of you in this room. If you're an American Christian, you live in America, you are, you are flat out rich. Uh, that they would not be arrogant, nor put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Some things to think about. Are we honoring God with our money and our resources? Are we all in in that area? Or are we struggling to put Him first in that area?